G'day and welcome to Talking Finance, the Constant Investor's weekly radio show. This week, we're hopping aboard the USS Carl Vinson, the aircraft carrier that Donald Trump said he'd sent to North Korea, but was actually steaming south to Australia to pick us up. So we're going to bring you some truths about what's going on with China, the US and North Korea, and specifically how worried you should be as an investor, either about the geopolitics of the region or the Chinese economy. By way of preview, the answer is not very worried. As usual, we shouldn't base investment decisions on scare stories designed to sell newspapers and fish for clicks on websites. And while we're at it, we'll talk to a tax expert about what's going on with company tax in the United States, and around the world for that matter, and what that means for us. And we'll check in with Jared Minak to find out what's happening to the reflation trade, and also what he reckons are the chances of a housing bust. So let's get stuck straight into it with Jared. Well, I mean, the first thing I'd say, Alan, is I'm not sure that there was one reflation trade. What we saw last year initially, all the way back in January 2016, was the narrowly based China-related resource sector took off like a scalded cat as uh, the China bears were proven wrong uh, and Chinese data got better. But a lot of the other economically sensitive sectors and markets continued to lag quite badly uh, until the middle of 2016 when bond yields finally troughed and we got a sense that the general global macro environment was improving, not just China. So to answer your question in that context, I think that the the resource sector reflation part of the trade, yes, may have seen its best. And that's not to say that China is immediately going to turn weak, but a lot of these things in markets depend not on the growth rate, but on the rate of change in the growth rate. And what we saw through most of the last 18 months was Chinese growth accelerating, and I don't think it will accelerate much more. And some indicators may inflect, so they'll continue to grow, but just not grow at the rate that we're growing at, as as reported in the first quarter of, uh, of this year. But I think the broader part of the reflation trade, in a global context, the outperformance of emerging markets and, and the outperformance of, of industrial companies and the underperformance of more defensive stocks. This is all in the context, remember, Alan, I am a card-carrying secular stagnationist. So uh, for me, this was always going to be a trade. I think it probably will run out in the second half of this year, and that means it's effectively been an 18-month period where growth got the better, got the upper hand, but uh, I still expect that at some stage next year we will be back worrying about secular stagnation and a world of low growth and low rates. So this is a reflation trade that we're enjoying for a short period, uh, not a long period. Does that mean you think that the bond yield has peaked? I, I noticed that it peaked, the US bond yield peaked in, uh, on March the 13th. And as you say, it, the yield bottomed, on, I think, July the 16th last year. And after that, it looked like the world was in for reflation. Do you think that that peak on March 13th was it? I don't. I think we're likely to peak. I think yields are likely to increase um, over the next one to two quarters. But I need to put this in a context. You know, I've been saying to people, I think that a US 10-year yield, which is now uh, around, uh, you know, two and a quarter percent, could go to two and a half to two and three quarters percent. 
and there's an outside chance it might get to 3%, but if it got to 3%, I will get my mother to buy US 10-year yields. If that 2 and 3 quarter percent, let's say, is a round number, uh, turns out to be the peak, well, we're not there yet, but wow, it would still be a very low peak for a macro cycle, which is consistent with this bigger picture view that secular stagnation still has the upper hand. But the short answer to your question is, no, I'm not sure that we have seen the peak in yields for this cycle or this year, but I still think the peak, when it comes, will be relatively low by historical standards. And what does it mean for equities, which, of course, combine the valuation effect of the yields and earnings? I think this year we need to differentiate between U.S. equities and, and equities elsewhere. In my view, the U.S. economy is late cycle, and almost the definition of late cycle is that if you see growth improve, uh, you almost have to expect higher interest rates. What that means for an equity market is stronger growth becomes a a bit of a double-edged sword. Um, In the US, if we get both improving, as I expect, that means we'll probably get more Fed rate increases. It means we'll probably get a move up in interest rates, and that means valuations will come under pressure even if earnings growth is is reasonable. Outside the US, we are not late cycle. No one is talking any prospect of tightening in Europe or Japan this year, which means if their growth picks up, and it seems to be, you don't have the headwind coming from higher rates. And indeed, because Europe and Japan have been weaker than the US over the last few years, the improvement in growth is having seemingly a much bigger impact on their earnings forecasts. So if you look at what the consensus is saying about earnings forecasts, in emerging markets, they are revising their forecasts from downgrades to upgrades. In developed markets such as Europe, analysts are revising their forecasts from downgrades to upgrades. But in the US, they're going from downgrades to smaller downgrades. So not only... Uh, is the US lagging in terms of the pressure on valuations, they're also lagging in an earnings sense. So when you're talking about global equities, I immediately differentiate between the US, which I think may struggle from here, and the rest of the world, which I think will do better. And what about the political overlay on all this? I mean, you know, as you say, Europe's looking pretty good economically and earnings-wise, but there's a, there's a lot of political... Um, stuff going on that's hard to understand um, uh, and hard to predict and also uh, also the case in America. I've got North Korea and so on. So uh, does that change any of your thinking on those things? Just simply uh, underscores the point that this is a world where I think risks are underappreciated um, and markets have been, I think, uh, so far remarkably blase about them. Uh, in the US, uh, I've, I've insisted from the day he was elected uh, that markets have been pricing in Trump without the bad stuff. So they've uh, taken the good parts of the Trump agenda, which includes things like uh, deregulation, uh, rolling bank, banking sector regulation, uh, and corporate tax cuts, and markets immediately priced that sort of thing in, but didn't price the potential bad stuff, like as trade tensions or a reducing workforce as uh, undocumented migrants were let go of, or rising political tension. Now, I think what's happened just over the last month or two is markets said, ah, this may not be simply Trump without the bad stuff. Um, He missed out on health care. 
Um, it's not clear he's going to get through tax reform. And uh, now he's shot some missiles in Syria, and that's helped him in the polls. And for a politician who loves to be popular, perhaps he figures one missile strike is good for him. Uh, a few more missile strikes will be marvellous tonic for his ratings. So I think that's one of the things that's contributed to recent marginal increase in volatility and also, by the way, the decline in bond yields, as we've seen a traditional safe haven bid. How do you factor that in as an investor? Um, look, I'm telling people uh, you, know, you should be overweight equities outside the US and, and not be that interested in equities. But the main thing is you should be having some cash on the side. And I know it doesn't earn much, but cash, to me, uh, seems an essential part of any investor's armoury. Uh, it's got a bad brand name, obviously. I'm trying to rebrand it. As, as a multi-asset call option with no decay and no pre-specified strike price, makes it sound a little sexier. <laughs> that's uh, but that's what cash is. <laughs> that's it's a case of keeping your powder dry. Man, in other words, you can go out there and buy the dip in something that may get beaten up when something unexpected happens. Further on bad stuff, what are the chances of an Australian housing bust? I think they're increasing... I think, however, Australia Australia needs a downturn to get a serious housing bust. And in that sense, I think we are different to what we saw in America um, in the run-up to the GFC. Uh, of course, in America, it was their housing bubble popping that led to the macro downturn. Uh, I think in Australia, the sequence has to be the other way around. Uh, we need a downturn that leads to job losses uh, that will pop the housing bubble. Now, will we get a downturn? Um, look, I'm saying I think there's a one in three chance of that happening next year. Um, I'm getting more pessimistic than I have been. Um, and one of the things that's making me more pessimistic is what's happening in energy markets. And uh, the policymakers' great hope is that what takes over driving domestic growth next year as housing fades uh, is business investment outside mining. Now, if I wanted to frustrate that hope, if I wanted to wish ill on Australia, if I was Virat Kohli trying to put a spanner in the works, here's what I'd do. Firstly, I'd so muck around with the taxation of energy policy that no one would know if they were to build a long-lived uh, energy-related asset, whether you'd face a carbon tax, an emission trading system, uh, whether you could uh, link up to a network or whether you'd have direct action, uh, and that would just bamboozle anybody looking at increasing infrastructure and in the energy space. The second thing I was doing if I was this particularly malevolent uh, policymaker is I'd engineer um, a gas export boom that turned one of Australia's long-standing competitive advantages, cheap domestic gas, uh, into a disadvantage. So it now becomes um, unstable pricing and high relative to some of our competitors. And if you could pull off those two magnificent policy self-inflicted wounds, uh, you've probably ensured that we're not going to get much of a pickup in investment outside mining next year. And unfortunately, as things stand now, that seems to be the mess we're in. And if that's not yep. fixed quick, uh, then I think the risk of a recession next year will continue to mount. The possibility of a housing crash is a risk that has reappeared fairly recently, 
And another risk that's been around for a while and has recently popped up again is North Korea, mainly because of Donald Trump. Now, I recorded a long interview this week with an Australian who's been to North Korea seven times and understands the place. That's Peter Hayes of the Nautilus Institute, a security think tank in California. The full interview will be published next Wednesday, but here's a taste. I asked him whether he thinks Trump is getting advice that he needs to make a preemptive strike on North Korea. No, I don't think he's getting such advice at all. I mean, in the Korea policy review that has been just completed, and he's been briefed on a range of options, preemption is included, as is assassination, reportedly. But, you know, these are options that should be considered uh, as a matter of statecraft, uh, and then, you know, for reasons of prudence and realism, put aside. Uh, And my understanding is that that's exactly what has happened already and is likely to you know, continue to happen. And I have a, a lot of faith in the military. They're not stupid and they know the stakes. If there's another Korean war, not only will hundreds of thousands and millions of Koreans and Chinese and Americans and Japanese and other country citizens die in and around the Korean peninsula, but scores and then hundreds of thousands of American soldiers will be killed in the first month leaving aside nuclear weapons. This is just in a conventional war. This is the most serious compressed violence, latent compressed violence on the planet, and is therefore extremely dangerous. But Vice President Pence said some tough things again in Yokosuka whilst he stood on the Ronald Reagan aircraft carrier. What is really noteworthy is that the aircraft carrier that was announced on uh, April the 8th was going to head up to the Korean Peninsula to stand by the peninsula this past weekend uh, in case they tested a nuclear weapon or fired a missile that might hit Japan or Guam or Alaska or somewhere. That aircraft carrier left Singapore, turned south, and is now in the Indian Ocean. So you've got the military on the one hand saying tough things, but on the other hand, they're behaving with a great deal of of, uh, risk management. In other words, there's some adult supervisors in the Oval Room even as Trump learns on the job. And I think that we can have some confidence that that will continue uh, for the foreseeable future, that we're not about to go to war in Korea. And, you know, Koreans have a very good instinct for this. Koreans are just out living their life today. There's no run on the supermarkets. People are going to work, going to school. You know, there's no alarm in the streets. If Koreans picked up on something, we'd, we'd all know about it. And, of course, if they're going to preempt, they would also have to evacuate international civilians before they preempt, so the North Koreans would know about it. So this would not be a surprise preventive war. This would be, you know, a well-signaled in advance, uh, and the North Koreans would know all about it. So we could expect all hell to break loose, but not overnight. How do you think the situation will unfold then? Well, I think that the North Koreans will continue uh, testing missiles. They'll continue to develop nuclear weapons until the United States changes its policies towards it or until China and Russia move the chessboard around enough for them to relax a bit on their development program. Remember, they're a small state. And the way Koreans have always thought about great powers is like elephants. And if an elephant comes onto your grass patch... You attack it with everything you have the moment it steps over that line. 
Because if you don't, it's going to keep on coming and it's just going to trample you. So it doesn't matter whether it's China, Russia, Japan, the United States. You know, I guarantee the North Koreans are going to behave like this uh, until the tonality changes and until there's a matching of the uh, strategy of maximum pressure with maximum engagement. That's what coercive diplomacy should mean. The complication in all this is the relationship between America and China, now the most important diplomatic relationship in the world. It took a big step forward this week with President Xi Jinping's visit to Washington. And at the same time, I read a quite interesting article that examines whether Donald Trump is a blessing or a curse for China, concluding that he is in fact a blessing. So I tracked down the author, Duncan Calder, former head of the Australia-China Business Council and now with a consulting business called Contour Capital. I don't think he'll uh, launch an all-out trade war. Oh, and I think there's no doubt that... Uh, Donald Trump uh, has his business antenna twitching and he has a view that the deal that uh, the United States has been getting from China has not been as good as it should be and it's not been favorable to the United States. And so he's looking for ways to improve that. I think we've seen his style is to lead with very vocal rhetoric and positioning, but then to back off when necessary to get to uh, win-win gains. And I think there's some very significant gains that uh, Donald Trump can secure for America without having to engage on an all-out war, without having to label China as a currency manipulator. Your experiences with China, you've been involved with them for a long time, uh, watching them and so on. How, how do you judge their reaction so far to, to Donald Trump? Well, I think the word that comes to mind is measured. China has been very measured in its response to Donald Trump, and I guess we shouldn't really be surprised at that, given that uh, for a person to reach the, the top of the political arena in China, they've usually been mayors of cities, large cities, or maybe they've even been running large state-owned enterprises. So they've seen a lot and they've heard a lot, so they don't uh, get spooked easily. So I think the response has been very measured, cautious, they've been paying attention, but whenever things have been said that have been quite inflammatory or the media has tried to promote them as being very inflammatory, uh, China hasn't treated them in that way, has been very measured. You know, what springs to mind is the very strong reaction in the media when uh, President uh, Trump, you know, right at the very outset before he actually took the office, but after winning the election, he, he took a, a phone call. Uh, from the president of Taiwan, uh, President Tsai Ing-wen. And uh, that was really potentially very incendiary uh, and indicative of a potential change in the Americans' long-standing acceptance of the one China principle. And that is uh, really is a, a line in the sand for Chinese authorities who call that the, the political foundation for the entire China-US relations. And in fact, he's now said that uh, China is not a currency manipulator. What do you make of that? That shouldn't really be a surprise. If you just looked at the rhetoric in the, in the election campaign, of course, uh, there was an expectation that Trump may have uh, declared China to be a currency manipulator. But you need to remember that in, in the US, no 
politicians speak kindly of China. You know, in our last campaign, we had uh, Sanders, we had Clinton. Everyone was basically out there. Uh, Ted Cruz uh, bashing China. That's just part and parcel of the of the democratic process. It seems in the United States, but the U.S. Uh, Treasury has set down a list of three criteria for countries to be classified as a currency manipulator, Alan. And these are very. This is these are measured every six months. Uh, the last time uh, was in this U.S. Treasury report to the U.S. Congress in October last year. And the three conditions are that uh, to be a currency manipulator, the country must have a significant bilateral trade surplus. It must have material current account surplus. And it must engage in persistent one-sided intervention in foreign exchange markets. And it's, I think it's very important that the, that the U.S. Treasury itself, in that report to Congress, said that only the first condition of having a significant bilateral trade surplus was met by China. And other countries like Japan, Germany, South Korea, and Taiwan had actually each breached two of these three conditions. So by their own, their own measures, by their own U.S. Treasury's measures, China is not a currency manipulator, and certainly there are other countries that are, are better candidates for that. But of course, the, you know, in, the, in the brawl of the media uh, speculation about what Trump would do, given his very uh, intensive and volatile rhetoric in the lead-up, uh, this has been raised as a potentially significant issue. But it's not no surprise to me that uh, President Trump didn't make that decision. Uh, I wouldn't have expected him to. And uh, I think it's very wise that he uh, hasn't done so, given that you know, China has very serious financial weapons at its disposal, including trillions of dollars of U.S. debt that could be used against the, the U.S. if there was an unfair targeting of China in this way. And by the way, this week we got an update on the Chinese economy. First quarter GDP growth was 6.9%. Pretty good. So I asked Betty Wang of ANZ in Hong Kong whether it's actually as good as it looks. Yeah, I think basically there are two messages um, about the GDP data coming out uh, yesterday. So first of all, China's growth has clearly stabilized. As the data suggested, 6.9% is quite good record. And the risk of hard lending has significantly receded. Um, I also think that it provides a cushion for policymakers for the rest of this year to achieve the above 6.5% growth target. But second, whether such an investment-led growth is sustainable on the way of authorities' efforts to deleveraging is another thing. So if you look at credit growth for the first quarter of this year, it remained quite strong by historical standards. So we need to watch closely to see whether China's policymakers will send a strong signal to tighten monetary policy uh, shortly. China has been saying, and, and everyone's been saying really, that China is moving away from investment-led growth towards more services and consumption-led growth. Do the March figures indicate that they're actually still investment-led, that they're returning to that investment-led model? Well, to some extent, the answer is yes, because the structural reforms, which means that China will uh, shift to a consumption-led growth model, will take time, and especially when the external demand and external market is uh, suffering with some sluggish demand as well. So um, China, um, as what we've seen in the past few months, and even uh, last year, China has uh, temporarily relied on the investment-led growth model once again. 
to contain the uh, short-term downside risks and also to buy more time for policymakers to manipulate it as a policy to grow stably. In fact, it wouldn't matter, I suppose, the fact that the fixed asset investment increased or rebounded to 9.2% growth wouldn't matter so much if it wasn't debt-funded. But in fact, what's happened is the financing, credit financing, has uh, increased as well to $2.1 trillion Chinese yuan in that month. So that may be a concern. Is that right? Yeah, but I think that is also our concern. So if you look at the success of the investment for the first quarter of this year, and also, as you said, if you look at the monetary expansion or credit expansion for the first quarter of this year, it actually was quite strong by historical standards. So it suggests to us that uh, China um, partly is still relying on the invest- such a rel- um, investment-led growth model in the near term. Um, as I said, the, a structural reform will take time, and it also uh, faces a lot of hurdles in the economy when authorities trying to push through the structural reform. So, I mean, the bottom line is if there's any significant and unexpected downside risk in the economy, I would think that the Chinese authority would prefer to return back to the investment-led growth model, which is quite convenient and efficient for them to uh, to boost growth uh, in the near term. But uh, whether this uh, kind of growth model is sustainable, that's another thing. And uh, I think over the medium to longer term, I still think that uh, the structural reform is quite important for policymakers. And uh, we do think that uh, we will see some like sort of progress on the structural reforms uh, this year, even before the, uh, the party's transition by the end of this year. I suppose the good news is that 6.9% growth in the first quarter indicates that there'll be no trouble meeting the 6.5% target for the full year. Yep, exactly. That's what I said at the beginning. I think that 6.9% growth is quite decent and provides a very good cushion for policymakers um, to make sure that they can achieve the 6.5% growth target for this year. And finally today, if Donald Trump isn't going to blow us all up with a preemptive attack on North Korea, will he blow up our economy by cutting company tax to 15%, as he promised, and forcing us to follow? In fact, it's not just Trump's America. There's downward pressure on company tax rates all over the world. Here's Miranda Stewart from the Tax and Transfer Policy Institute at ANU. There's pretty substantial corporate tax rate competition happening around the world. Uh, We see it uh, in both rich countries and poorer countries. We see it in the Asia-Pacific region, uh, in the UK, Europe, and now potentially in the US. Um, Australia's headline rate of 30% for large corporates, of course now a little bit lower for smaller companies, is now at the high end of nominal rates. The US, of course, is still higher. What's the average? Is there such a thing? I would say the average is probably somewhere between 20 and 25 would be my guess. The average is not very informative because tax planning, especially by by multinationals, really does depend on the fact that there's diversity in rates uh, and that there's a number of lower rates as well as zero rates, of course, as well as these lower rates for investment across the world. Perhaps you can explain to us the sort of interaction of the various changes to corporate tax rates around the world and the OECD project, which is called BEPS, which uh, I always forget what it stands for. Perhaps you can uh, remind me. There is this project to try to ensure that companies pay the proper tax, but at the same time, you know, countries are also lowering their tax rates. 
it's a contradiction, really. Um, so the OECD has got this project, this BEPS project, which stands for Base Erosion and Profit Shifting. So the OECD BEPS project is an attempt to get countries to actually cooperate with each other, to get governments to agree to prevent the most excessive forms of profit shifting into tax havens uh, by putting kind of agreed rules uh, or boundaries around multinational tax uh, activity. Uh, the contradiction is, of course, that at the same time, countries are pretty, some countries pretty aggressively lowering their tax rates. The UK is a classic example. So they're introducing what you might think of as integrity or anti-abuse rules. Uh, the UK has a diverted profits tax. Uh, which is intended to make sure that Google pays some tax in the UK uh, on its uh, profits for its advertising in the UK, even if it doesn't have a presence there. But at the same time, the UK is lowering its rate. They're down to 20% and they're proposing uh, an even lower rate in future as their general corporate tax rate. This BEPS thing has been going on for a long time and hasn't got anywhere, really, or it doesn't seem to have, uh, to the point where countries like UK and Australia have had to preempt it to deal with political pressure to do something about it. That's right. There has been. There's been a Senate inquiry into tax avoidance in Australia. There was a similar inquiry in the UK Parliament. There's been a lot of attention in Europe uh, to, you know, the, 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 the bad boys of international tax. Um, uh, famously, in 2013, Starbucks made a voluntary tax payment to the UK to try to kind of deal with the public pressure. Um, at, at, at the same time, we're seeing this this lower rate. But yeah, Australia and the UK, uh, in a way, preempted some of the BEPS project by uh, enacting these anti-abuse rules. So we've got what you call the Google tax, trying to make sure that there's a taxable presence of Google in Australia for tax, and then this diverted profits tax, which is about profit shifting into low-tax jurisdictions, levying a higher tax rate on that unless the corporation comes forward with all of its information about its offshore activity. But it's got about as much hope as the Doha round of GATT of getting up, doesn't it? I mean, I mean, in the sense that, you know, you can have a group of companies all agree to sign up, but then there's another country over there that didn't sign up and it's attracting all the companies who want to pay less tax. This is the dilemma, isn't it? Um, I think that's true. On the other hand, we're a market here. I mean, corporations like Google are selling advertising into Australia and they are making some money here. You know, Apple's certainly selling lots of iPhones here. Netflix is selling lots of downloadable content. Let's just talk about the US for a minute. I mean, is it fair to say that whatever they do will be very influential in terms of what happens around the world? I think so, and particularly influential for Australia. I do think that uh, we've always responded to US tax policy uh, in our tax treaty policy with the US uh, and even in our domestic uh, policy. What do you think will happen in the end? You've got an idea? Uh, look, my prediction for what it's worth, and uh, it's probably not worth very much, is that the rate will come down. The US federal corporate tax rate for large companies is 35%. And when you add on some of the state tax rates, New York State, so for example, has a company tax, the, the, the top rate is 39 And I think we'll see that federal tax rate come down. So the Trump, uh, originally when he went to the election, announced 15% federal tax rate. Uh, the US Republicans wanted 20%. Um, so one possibility is that they they go to 25. Um, they're pretty worried about the fiscal deficit as well, the Republicans, and they've got a big deficit over there. 
So it's unlikely to come down as, as low as they've suggested in either of those plans. But my guess is that it will come down below 30%. That's my prediction. Do you think that Australia will have to maintain the same sort of gap as we currently have? I mean, as you say, their, their average rate for companies is about 39%. Ours is 30 So our company tax rate is something like 75% of America's. Will we have to come down to be 75% or something like that of what their new rate is? It's interesting, isn't it, as to where we should be. Uh, I think that the, the unspoken policy for company tax rates in the past, I've never seen this written down, is possibly that we stay somewhere in the middle of the pack, if you see what I mean, uh, I guess among kind of both poor and rich countries internationally. I mean, the German, the German headline rate is around about 32% at the moment, if you include the federal rate and state governments. Some of the other European countries are still around that 30% mark, actually, or only slightly below it. The uh, UK is much lower, 20%. Uh, the US is our single biggest source of foreign investment. There are lots of other countries now as well, but the US is still the single biggest country. So it does seem to me to have a kind of disproportionate uh, weight. And we certainly, I think we certainly want to be at their rate, whether we have to be much below it, I don't know. I mean, I, w- I would have thought... It seems to me 25% is kind of potentially the new normal. If America cuts a tax rate to 25 or 20%, there's going to be no alternative, is there? That's my view. There is dispute about that. I mean, there are certainly people out there, not just politicians saying things, commentators saying that in their view we can maintain that higher rate. You know, we do have a particular unique economy. We've got a resource economy. We're remote. We've got a big, large, uh, wealthy market. My view is that, yeah, we do need to probably lower that rate. And so we're, my view is that, yeah, we do need to probably lower that rate. And so we're exploring broadening that corporate tax base and then also broadening the personal income tax base, tightening loopholes in taxing capital income in the personal base. Um, and also potentially, of course, the, the big unpopular one, raising the GST. Prince died a year ago tomorrow. I've never been a big fan, I must admit. Never really got him. But I know he was very talented, maybe a genius even, and very influential. Here's Purple Rain. Next week, it's my birthday, so maybe I'll sing for you. I used to do a pretty good House of the Rising Sun, you know. There is a house in New Orleans. On second thoughts, maybe not. You'll be ringing Phoebe to cancel your subscription. Thanks to Phoebe and the rest of the team this week and to ISM Studios for the music. See you in your inbox on Saturday. (laughs) 